Speaks, and I am thrilled today to do this interview. We have a dynamic duo with us who I'm going to introduce shortly to you. But because we always get new listeners, I like to tell people a little bit about who Alzheimer's Speaks is and what what is it we do and why do we do it. Um, bottom line, my mom had dementia for 30 years, so it was life changing for me, and I just really felt that people deserve to be connected to services, products, and tools. And I wasn't finding that as a daughter myself. And so we really are just an advocacy-based company trying to provide multiple platforms to connect people um, to the services and tools that they deserve and to raise everyone's voice from those diagnosed with the dementia to families and businesses and researchers. We're not going to find a cure and we're not going to learn how to care well if we don't have these open conversations that are inclusive. We also help companies expand their brand footprint through our platforms and through our content, you know, via our audience, because again, <clears throat> we need to be connected. We want to be connected and we want to hear what you have to say. Uh, and I have to always thank our audience listeners because your likes, your clicks, your shares have you know, made Alzheimer's Speaks a, a global phenomenon, which I never, I never thought would occur in my lifetime. Um, you are really becoming an influencer and helping us in our community get the word out. And so for that, I want to say thank you. And I want to invite you to be um, a possible guest on our show, because again, everyone's voice is welcomed. I also am just going to do one shout out to Dementia Action Alliance, uh, who is having their second uh, North American conference um, on dementia, June 20th through the 22nd, down in Atlanta. And um, DAA is doing great work about engaging, empowering, and enabling people um, dealing with dementia. So. Uh, go to daanow.org and you can find out more information about them. So with no further ado, let me introduce you to this fabulous couples. We have Dr. Ebony I. Green, who is a registered nurse and a family caregiver. She and her husband, Terrence Green, are the co-founders of the nonprofit called Caregiver Support Services. And their organization trains and supports families and frontline caregivers, which is so incredibly needed. Terrence is their corporate account exec, and um, Ebony is the president and CEO of Caregiver Support Services. She has also written three books focusing on family caregiving called At the Heart of the Matter. I love that title. Uh, Caregiving in the New Millennium, which is all so appropriate, and Reflections of the Soul, which really touches me because I think this journey is one that really, you know, if you can bring it inward um, as, a, as a care partner, you can get so much out of this journey that is uh, very unexpected and very, uh, I think, some very surprising gifts. So, so welcome, you two. How are you doing? Great. I'm doing great. Well, good. I'm I'm very excited to have you have you with us. And I know Terrence, you're gonna scoot, so we're gonna start with you. And I appreciate you squeezing us into your schedule today. Um, can you tell us what led you to to start caregiver support service? When I'm talking with people and interviewing, there always seems to be this personal connection that gets people going. This has to change. <laughs> we can do better. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story, so I'll give you a little bit of how we started and maybe just a history, just a brief history of uh, how we got to where we are today. So with that being said, um, Ebony worked in a long-term care facility uh, as a quality assurance nurse and was seeing the need uh, for support services for caregivers, and she 
And and every day she would come home and she's like, man, these guys really could use some resources and some direction. Now, let me remind you, this was back in 1996 uh, that we were having this conversation. So you had a lot of people that went for a for-profit situation and created home care agencies where we kind of went the other direction. We went more toward the advocacy aspect of things. So what we ended up doing was starting a, a local group called the Geriatric Support Group. And we would participate in college health fairs and, and local events just to try to create awareness in regards to uh, supporting caregivers who um, are either taking care of a loved one in the home or just placing them in a long-term care facility. So we would start creating awareness uh, in that aspect. And what ended up happening, we had to relocate uh, to Omaha, Nebraska, which is where we are currently. And uh, they had a group here uh, called the Senior Living Room Support Group. And we took that organization and merged it with ours and came up with caregiver support services back then. So we locked down all the domains uh, for caregiver support services so that we would be easy to find for anyone who was interested in uh, looking for support and resources uh, as a caregiver. So what ended up happening along with that is we created a training uh, to support family caregivers to become nursing assistants and medication aids, and they would actually get on the registry. So they had a dual role where they would both provide um, services to a loved one, and they would also volunteer in the community to provide respite for other caregivers. And just watching those connections grow, we did that for about 12 years, um, was just an amazing concept and just an, and very rewarding uh, to see these people grow over a, over a course of three to four weeks. And so from there, what we've done is shifted the momentum and have started putting a lot of the resources and, and uh, solutions online to help more people, uh, not only in our community, but around the world for that matter. So that's kind of where we are now. And, and, and from starting from just a old uh, creating awareness, now we actually have solutions and services uh, for people to take advantage of. Wow, that's, that is fantastic. And it's, um, it's not amazing that it's grown and that the the need was identified. And I, I love how you are empowering others to, to care for somebody else, you know, getting, getting that time out there and really valuing the skill sets that they're learning and understanding the importance of respite care uh, for both the person with dementia and, and uh, the person who is, who is, you know, providing care. That space is needed in pretty much all relationships. None of us want to be tied to the hip all the time. Terrence, you know, when you started, can you tell us kind of what your original goal was and then how that changed over time? I know it's expanded, but it, I think it's always interesting for people to go, well, this is what we started with, but this is really where we are and, and how we got here and maybe where you want to go from there as well. Yeah, well, that's a great question because originally it was kind of funny because we called ourselves healthcare and technology because Ebony was in the healthcare field and I was more in the technology field. So when we first started, I, the goal was to, uh, how can we help people, number one, but it was just a really a community-based uh, program. So when we, relo when we relocated here to Omaha, Nebraska, um, I built a website for her so that she would be able to expand the message to more people. And so it was just a very small website, nothing uh, too sophisticated. But that's when we really started to grow as an organization because the website and locking down the domain, at the, that time it was Senior Caregiver Support, I believe. And uh, just locking down those domains and then being and having high rankings got us the publicity that we needed. And then we grew into this, the training aspect because we were finding a lot of people did not want to go to a long-term care facilities. They wanted to stay within their community. And we, we seen this back in the late 90s, early millennial. And so we were able to build a training program by partnering uh, with the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services here in Nebraska uh, to offer that training to individuals who wanted to learn how to care for a loved one. So we broke down some of those barriers where most was usually a college course or a course that was offered within a hospital system to where we were able to knock down those barriers and let anyone who was able to read and write the English language and had the passion to learn 
how to care for an individual, we were able to bring those individuals in and provide them the training so that they could go back out into to the community and not only help their loved one, but they were also able to go out and find employment so that they could take care of their loved one in the home environment. So we were never really focused on the training aspect, but it ended up being uh, probably the best brick and mortar program that we brought to the market. Well, and that makes sense because we all need education. And what I love is when you said, you know, they need to read and write, but they have to have that desire, that passion um, to care. And I think, you know, in our depths, I think we all want to care well, but there is no book. There is, you know, there, there wasn't anything like that. And so for you to bring that in a user-friendly um, atmosphere that, that they can tap into is, is brilliant. And it's so needed. You know, I hear that over and over and over again all around the world that, you know, we still don't have enough of it. Um, and, and people need different types of training because they all learn a little bit differently as well on that. So I think that's great. What, uh, what do you see uh, coming down the pike for the future for you? Well, we, our, our main focuses are building on our previous success, but bringing more interesting topics uh, to the market. For example, grief. Um, we just feel like there's a lot of grieving caregivers out here that really never address that particular topic. And it's a very challenging topic, even for experts um, to bring to the table and speak about it on a uh, frequent basis. So that's going to be something you'll see us really hammering uh, here in the near future, as well as caregiver wellness. And I think Ebony will speak more on that, taking care of yourself and the nine components of the caregiver wellness you model. Those are going to be some of the things that we're going to challenge the market uh, in regards to spreading the word and making sure that our caregivers, not just in America, but all over all over the world, are taking not taking care of themselves uh, so that they can have the capacity to take care of their loved one over a longer period of time, and it also goes for the paraprofessional caregiver, the home, the home, uh, the home aides, CNAs, RNs, LPNs, anybody who provides care has to have the ability and be aware and self-conscious of self-care. Exactly, and you know those are conversations we don't have. I mean, we don't have with our children. We don't teach that. We just do that. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to be 60 in um, this next summer, or this summer, I guess, when we turn the year. And, you know, I grew up as a little girl who you just take care of everyone. That's what you do. You don't, you don't drop anything. You just take on more, <laughs> you know. And there comes a breaking point, you know, where people have to start sorting out, can I still do this? Is this still valid? just because it was valid and needed at one time, is it still a good fit for me now? And we don't have those hard conversations. And I, I love the idea about um, the grief because I think there, especially with dementia, there's so much ambiguous loss. It's just constantly. And we, we spin in so many circles. And what I see is um, one of the things I tell my audiences when I'm out speaking is, uh, and I've learned this from my mom, I think we only remember three things, the, the tears, the fears, and the joy. And, and the, um, the tears are usually over everything that we've lost and that we feel, you know, we'll never have again. And we can, we can get tied up in that versus trying to shift um, our perceptions in terms of an attitude of gratitude that we had something that a lot of people never had. And even though it was too short for our life, it was a heck of a lot longer than some others, you know, and that shift to me was huge. And then, then we have that other side where we're projecting into the future and there can be a lot of grief and loss wrapped up in that because of all the fear. And I'm not going to be able to do this because I have to do that. And much of that stuff never happens or occurs, but we worry about it. And then, you know, when I ask people, what do you want? Tears, fear, or joy, everyone says joy, but Joy, to me, can only be found in the moment. It's the only place we can identify it. It's the only place we can create it. And so if we can learn to consciously care for others and ourselves in terms of what we want in life, and it really is a, a, a conscious awakening, you know, a shift in perceptions and, 
and tasks. So I, I think the, the topics you're talking about are so extraordinarily important, um, not only for people's uh, physical well-being, but their mental health, which is a, it's a ripple effect. You know, it, it really is, and, and we don't we don't have those conversations enough. So that's really exciting. Now, before before I let you go, Terrence, I, I do want to hear about your own personal um, care partnering. You know, for your mother, and what advice you would have. You know, if you can tell us a little bit about that story, and <clears throat> what advice you'd have for our audience for someone else caring for a loved one. Oh. The best advice is, is certainly um, don't try to go at it alone. Um, use your your resources such as your family, friends, neighbors, anywhere you can find support to help um, tackle the many challenges that uh, you're trying to overcome, not only for your own family, but you know for the, the, the loved one that you're trying to provide care for. Um, you have to access resources. You have to be cognizant. Uh, of, of your own uh, well-being, and and more importantly, you 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 really have to understand the family dynamics of what goes along with taking care of someone, especially someone uh, who's near the end of life, because you're going to have other uh, family members who have their own perception of what should be done, and uh, if you're that lead individual, that primary caregiver. Um, you're going to have to have thick skin and you always have to keep the best interests of your loved one in the forefront. And if you do that, uh, you should have a successful journey. Yeah, that's another great topic for you guys to hit up and put on your to-do list is those hard conversations with the family. And for, I mean, we're all going to die. So I, I don't know why we have such a difficult time having that conversation. No one's going to escape this. <laughs> you know, it's just, but we we always focus on an end of life instead of living a good smart life and making sure that we we live it the way we want till the very end and i think if we can shift that perception as well you know and be open to listening what everyone in the family has to say but then making sure that we know what is it the person themselves wants yes yes and i will say one more thing before i go is that um, during that journey with while taking care of my mom as well as my dad, uh, we were able to create and partner with Right at Home and create a conversation uh, booklet for uh, people to access. So um, I certainly would recommend that as a good resource. You can find that on our website, and um, I'm sure Ebony will share more information about that as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you for, for taking this time to be with us. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, Ebony, you have just written three books, and, you know, they're on caregiving, and I know that writing a book is a journey. A lot of people uh, say it's like birthing a child, you know, and so I'm really, really interested in this last book that you wrote, Reflections from the Soul. Can you tell us how, how you came up with that title? Because A, I think it's really intriguing, and two, what the heck are we going to find in it? Absolutely. Well, my brother-in-law calls me soul. And often um, when we're having challenging times within the family, I end up in that comforter role. And so he's, he's called me soul for years. And so as I was writing the book and finishing the book and then um, looking at different titles, that title really spoke to me. And so that's why it's reflections from the soul because it's really truly a reflection from the thing of the things that I have in my heart and soul, and um, and ideas and 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 experiences from from suffering with grief, suffering from grief. Okay, so inside the book, that's a, an interesting story of how how you came up with the title. Can you tell us kind of break down, you know, chapters or what people can expect to find if there's exercises in it or tip sheets or you know what what does that what's the format? So there are three sections that are the the meat of the book, and the first section I really spend time talking about historical figures who were caregivers. Of course, we wouldn't have had that term at the time, but um, who were caregivers and who had some type of experience with grief, either from the passing of a loved one or 
um, while caring for their loved one. And a couple of examples, um, in the beginning, I, I begin with a story about Eleanor Roosevelt and how she finds her voice after her husband, um, our president, has uh, suffered from polio. So she's now become his caregiver. And um, she really finds her voice and she does what she thinks that she cannot. And so I feel like that's a great message for caregivers to do uh, what we feel that we can't, meaning to face our grief and sadness. And um, so that's the opening story. But there are also other historical figures like uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he was a sickly child. The Kennedys, I use a, a story of the, about them in, in the book. And then also um, Queen Victoria, who we know grieved for for about 40 years after her husband passed. So the first section really t looks at grief and historical figures and also a few stories of my own um, are, are included in there about guilt and regret. The second section of the book, we really take the time to um, offer, again, um, opportunities for um, their poems in each section, um, but it really is set up so that you can evaluate your own feelings and then have the opportunity to journal about them. So the um, acronym in, included in that section is AIR, acknowledge, um, reflect, acknowledge, um, be open to being inspired and to reflect. And so we really look at that and, and as an encouragement for grieving caregivers. And then the final section, I talk about family dynamics and how losing someone that you love can definitely impact your family, both during the caregiving situation and then after you've lost a loved one. Wonderful. Well, that, that helps me um, have a better base of, of what the book is about. It sounds very, very um, interesting there. In terms of overall message, what, what is your goal and, and who is your key audience? Is it families? Is it professionals? Is it just anybody going through any type of grief or is it um, regarding death? What, what is it? Focused on um, family and frontline caregivers um, and, and, you know, professionals too, because I think far too often as professionals, I know as a nurse, there are plenty of times where we lost someone um, and it was life-changing for me, um, different experiences as a nurse. So we really have targeted uh, family members and um, caregivers who are grieving. And the overall message is that in some way, I think over the years, we've been it's been reinforced that we will have these um, stages of grief and we'll experience each of those um, emotions and then at some point within a year or so is really what we often hear that we will then resolve our grief and we will um, go go back to our normal living i remember uh doing taking a class uh in my graduate work and really looking at the stages of grief and recognize that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who, who wrote The Great Stages of Grief, she really spent her time with the dying patient. And so when you're talking about um, experiencing grief in these stages, she was really looking at the denial that you may feel when you have a new diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis, and the bargaining that you may experience and so on. And so we've also used that publicly and, you know, it's, a, it's very well known because her research was phenomenal. But I think in some ways we lost the idea that, or, or the comfort with knowing that when you lose someone, that you may not ever get over that loss because loss changes you and loving a person changes you. And so I really want people to know that um, there will be days where you're really sad and you feel like you can't move forward. And there may be days where you feel um, really happy thinking about your loved one and have a special fond memory. I think that's so true. People expect that, okay, in a year, everything's going to be fast and I'm going to be better. And really your first year is all the holidays, the birthdays, and you are figuring out what are those going to look like? How are they going to feel? And every year I know for myself, I, I think of my loved ones. 
who, who have passed, who aren't there, and what would they have done? What would they have added to? What are we, what are we missing? Um, but over time, it gets easier, and I become more grateful that I had them in my life to begin with. Um, you know, with dementia now, there is, of course, the, the passing of a loved one, which seems to be the, the focus um, from what you're talking about. But yet with dementia, there's this ambiguous loss, this constant loss of skill levels or intimacy or whatever it might be. Um, do you feel the book is um, appropriate for people going through ambiguous loss or they are anticipating loss? I absolutely do um, because I think there are emotions that we feel while we are grieving. And so when I'm thinking about um, ambiguous loss, you may not know why you're so sad. Um, and you, and you, I, what I mean by that is, yes, you know that you're sad because there's a loss of maybe function or there's a loss of um, even a loved one remembering you. And, um, but there are also other things that are wrapped up in those emotions. And sometimes that's things like guilt, um, regret. Um, and so I think that uh, reflections really would be helpful, especially that second section where you're having that opportunity to um, acknowledge your feelings, to um, be open to inspiration and to reflect deeply on what it is that you are currently experiencing. And I think it's also appropriate to um, look at your feelings with each loss because each loss is different. That is so true. And I think too, it's, you know, anyways, for me, and this is my learning style, it, it would prepare me a little bit better. I'm one that likes to get educated ahead of time, if at all possible. And so I think knowing that people are dealing with this, that it's not just me who's going through this, um, gives me a little bit more resolve, a little bit more comfort, um, thinking I'm not so alone, this isn't abnormal, you know, all of those types of things. So yeah, I, I would see where, you know, I would think that, you know, that guide would be really helpful for, for people as well um, in that book. Um, now, you recently partnered with Write at Home, and you authored an actual guide called Understanding Grief. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? So this is an appropriate guide for caregivers, family, and professional. Um, it's something that you can access and download, so it's a free resource. But more importantly, what it really focuses on is that pre-loss um, emotions that you may be experiencing. Um, we talk a little bit about ambiguous grief and um, anticipatory grief. In there, we also really focus on the common emotions so that rather than, again, looking at stages, what are some things that you may feel as you are grieving? And then what are some suggested uh, strategies, researched uh, coping mechanisms that you may find helpful? And then we also spend time talking about you know, what to do for yourself uh, as you are grieving, like make, making sure you get rest. It may not all be at one time that you're getting eight hours of sleep. I know when I'm um, grieving, sometimes I'm not getting very much rest at all. But so really good, uh, wholesome, hearty tips that can help you and, to, and remind you of the importance of self-care while you're grieving the loss of a loved one. You know, I like um, I like that you went on the feelings and the strategies versus the stages because what I hear from people all the time is I don't fit. Mm -hmm. I don't fit that model. I'm not moving on. I I bounce back sometimes two stages or three stages, and I feel like I'm starting all over again. And again, I think that gets back to the personal dynamic of what was their relationship. You know, how were they brought up? regarding death and dying and, and loss, um, you know, what are they dealing with in terms of how they cared? You know, do they feel guilty? Do they feel comfortable that they did all they, all they could? You know, all of those things come into play along with, of course, the, the relationship at hand. Not everybody has a great relationship for who they were caring for. And so some people feel some anger and they feel loss of self that they gave too much. Um, sometimes. So, I mean, there's all different types of, of loss and grief, and I don't think that we have those conversations enough. 
because you know there's the saying as you well know when you've met one person with dementia you've met one when you've met one care partner you've met one when you're in one environment that's just one and i think the same goes for this whole um, grief concept it's it's fluid and it's um it isn't a to b to c it just it it doesn't work that way for most people and most emotions don't and so we probably shouldn't really expect grief to be any different but yet i think there's a standard out there that we've been taught this is the process and, and this is the right way to grieve um and in you know with people that i have dealt with they feel kind of ousted um and abnormal if they don't follow the pattern that's been told they should. An example could be uh, maybe somebody wanting to sell a house sooner than a year and people go, oh no, you can't, you must wait, you must wait. And I, I remember when I sold real estate, I had one client and she said, he died on my kitchen floor. I loved him. I can't keep reliving that. I have to move. And her children didn't understand that. And I, I totally, totally got that. So, I mean, there's all different ways that we process. How do we, how do we move on, you know, um, with this emotion? So that again, folks, that's a free download. So that is absolutely wonderful. Now you also do um, some grief support programs and I know that you're offering a new one. Please tell us more about that. So the um, Understanding Grief is the name of the three-part series, and we'll have three sessions. The first session will really focus on your feelings that are associated with losing someone you love. We'll also spend time during that first live session talking about complicated grief, complicated spiritual grief, and post-traumatic stress responses to grief. These are sometimes um, experiences um, that these are sometimes emotions that caregivers are more likely to experience because you have been providing care and that relationship is so intertwined. So we'll talk about that as well. In the second session, we'll spend time talking about family dynamics and how family structures can change after we've lost someone. How do we um, reintroduce ourselves to uh, new ideas, new um, experiences after we've lost someone? I know that there are major changes in, in our family structure um, in the last few years after losing my father-in-law first and then in a couple of years, my, uh, within a couple of years, my mother-in-law. So I think that's very important aspect of how we um, cope with with grief and then the third session we'll we'll spend time talking about coping mechanisms and I'll share all types of um, different activities that really help may help you during different times uh, when you're feeling especially sad one of the things I'm kind of excited about is there's a essential oil that they have that's called comfort and it's something that that is suggested to be used when uh, a caregiver, uh, when an individual is grieving to kind of help you. And so we'll have interesting products and, and activities like that that will be shared in the third session. So they're all three live. We'll offer this four times this year. Uh, it is sponsored by Right at Home. Um, the first session is going to be in um, March. And then we'll also have another session in May, August, and then October. So they're all live uh, webinars and you can register and they are, um, are free for registration. Well, how cool is that? There's nothing better than free. Um, I was really intrigued when you were talking about the family dynamics and how they changed. Cause I know in my family, it really changed. And uh, you know, I, I had a girlfriend whose mom just passed away and she comes from a large family and she was like, I mean, she was grieving her mom, but yet she was really excited to take over kind of that, that matriarch role. And she's like, I've been waiting for this. I, I want this. And I, I just kind of looked and thought, I wonder if the rest of the family wants that, you know, because it was just, it, it seemed like she thought it was just an automatic transition to her. And I've seen in a lot of other families, it doesn't always transition the way people think it's going to. It doesn't always go to the, the eldest, whatever, um, in the family. 
I also think people are kind of stymied by the family dynamics in terms of who comes around after the loss um, between family and friends. That's a really touchy thing because everyone's kind of globbing around um, before someone passes and then the care partner is just left like, hey, 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 what about me? You know, um, I, I'm struggling here too. And then you've got the communication changes um, in standards, lines of that, that change. And then for some, I think, um, and I will say this is with my family, it's the, it, the importance or lack of importance of that family structure anymore. I mean, we've had a really dis big disconnect since both my parents have got, have have passed. It's you know, for some of my siblings, it's like why bother? And and I was the one trying to pull everyone together, and then I finally kind of stopped. And my daughter's kind of taken over that role, and now she's getting really frustrated too. And I'm like, honey, we you know, you can't force people to gather. It's been a strange process, and I think um, is is strange as we feel it is, and awkward. I think a lot of families struggle with that exact same thing. Um, or maybe we're just hoping so. And that's one of our coping mechanisms. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and then you talked about um, dealing with coping mechanisms. And, and I think that is so powerful because, again, I think it's something we don't talk about. What are some options? How, how do we bring ourselves comfort? And so if you've got products and tools and exercises you know, that people can participate in. I think that that is absolutely fantastic. Um, is one of your, your tools um, journaling or writing prose or poetry? I know for a lot of people, um, anyways, in my Alzheimer's Speaks community, that is really powerful. And when someone posts a poem, I, I, I'm shocked at, at how many people clamor for that information. I mean, they love reading other people's feelings because that's really what it is. Yes, they, they, it's one of my biggest coping mechanisms. I love writing, and I've always loved um, writing poetry. And so when my Aunt Linda passed away, um, one of the things that I did was I spent a lot of time, um, everybody would be sleeping, and I would be awake thinking about, about her and, and our relationship. And so I had quite a few poems that I wrote that I have never shared. It's just kind of like our, our little private um, conversation. And so that's one of the ways that I remember my aunt is through the poetry. And I think it's a great coping mechanism for caregivers. I'd like to share two other things that I think are really helpful that will, will be expanded on, of course, in the, in the um, Understanding Grief um, series. But one is, is thinking about... Um, things that bring you back to the relationship with your loved one. And I've shared before that my um, grandmother had a beautiful Afghan blanket. And um, that was one of the things that um, she was always wrapped up in that blanket. And that was one of the things after she passed that um, my, um, my mother sent to me. And so I have it in my, uh, my closet. And my granddaughter was here uh, last week and she was a little cold, so I took her to the closet to show her where to um, grab extra blankets, and, and she picked my grandmother's blanket, and she told me that that was her favorite blanket, and I went on to explain to her that um, it was my grandma's blanket and that it was very special to me, and she's, she's six, but she was saying to me how special the blanket is to her, was to her as well because it would would have been her great grandmother. Um, and so she felt very comforted in it. And it brought me a sense of comfort seeing her in the blanket. The other thing I think about is when I lost my aunt, Cynthia, we are birthday twins. And so I think about her often and she had a, a, the most wonderful laugh you've ever heard. And she loved to laugh and joke. And so when I passed, when she passed, I felt like for a while, that I lost my ability to find humor in things. And it took me a little while to think about how Aunt Cynthia was really such a happy person that I could be her life imprint by continuing to laugh and, and share funny things. And that really helped me 
um, cope with losing her. And so strategies and tips and tools of those natures uh, of um, that nature will be shared in the in the coping component of the webinar series. Well, I appreciate you sharing the story about the blanket because I I have a blanket from my mom too, and my granddaughter, you know, she's four. But she, it's, it's almost like she's an indigo child. She's just so connected to my mom, you know, and it, it's, it, it is comforting to see them appreciate and just kind of have this inner knowing of, of the connections and the importance of that. I also love the phrase life imprint. You know, a lot of times we refer to, you know, what's your legacy going to be? But really, it's about what is that imprint you're making on others? You know, what what gifts are you giving them during your journey? And a lot of times we don't even know what those things are because it's not something we talk about uh, very much. But I, I think it's a neat thing to be conscious of. And when somebody passes, even even for yourself, just writing down the gifts you received. What were the, what were the memorable moments? Uh, to me, that brings me great comfort um, in terms of, gosh, how lucky was I? How lucky was I to know this person or, you know, to have this conversation or be in their presence at this time or to create this thing or whatever it might be. Um, but that that is always, for me, you know, soothing to, to my soul anyways. You know, with your, your grief support group, I love that these webinars are free. Do you do any in-person grief support groups at all or or online ones that are ongoing? Of course, I go out to do presentations um, for grief, um, for groups. So I'm always available for that. But as far as us having a good, solid reach, we do the, um, the webinars on, online. And, and then there's opportunities for individual sharing in the, the group that'll be associated with, with the um, webinar series. Okay. The reason I ask that is our um, Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team, long name, um, developed a uh, reentry program, and we call it the Dementia Caregiver Reentry Program. And what we found was people said, you know, there's a lot of like eight-week courses out there, and then you're supposed to be done and over and healthy. And they, they were like really frustrated going, that's not working for me. I need something more. Um, and it was really, when we got down to it, they really wanted a sense of community of people going through similar journeys and stuff. And so I like that you're having that group with the webinar so people can still connect and have conversations and and maybe you'll even decide to have, you know, group meetings every once in a while just to let them share and to help facilitate what they're going through. They have found it really helpful, you know, to do here. And um, so I always like to share that with people because if it's a concept that they can, you know, grab a hold of and, and might work for them, you know, please, please do so um, with that. Now, in, in wrapping up, is there any last-minute tips that you want to give care partners in terms of their journey? Yes, I really think that the group that you're talking about, the reentry group, is really a wonderful idea and one of the best um, approaches that I've heard. And I think that this is important because when we're grieving, we're at such a high risk for isolation. And one of the things I've been reading um, a lot about this past year in 2018 is the, um, the, the high numbers of individuals who are isolated and who, um, and then we look at the, there's a statistic where they talk about um, the risk factors associated with isolation being similar to cigarette smoking. And so that can have the same impact on our well-being as um, as isolating ourselves. So isolating ourselves can have the same impact on our well-being as um, smoking. And so I think it's so important that we find ways to connect because I can even say for myself, having a number of losses and then getting having a family get together and noticing um, that you don't just have an empty chair, but you have would have an empty bench or an empty empty picnic table 
of people that you've loved and that are no longer with you can sometimes make families feel as though you don't want to get together as much because you're hurting so bad um, when you're thinking about the people that you've lost. And so the isolation really is more of a self-protective mechanism. And so I just really want us to, to open up to understanding and recognizing first that it is not uncommon to feel as though you're very sad and maybe you don't want to get together that much um, with family but that it is important to acknowledge it, acknowledge your feelings, and to not self-isolate because we, we need to um, continue to work on making sure we have an opportunity to reach our highest level of functioning. So I think having those connections, re-entry where your life has really been centered on your loved one or your client, and now you have an opportunity to bring the focus back in on you and find opportunities to connect. I think it's so important. One other thing I wanted to ask you too is, you know, there's something called the death cafes. And I don't know if you've heard of those where it sounds like, and I have not attended one, but my understanding is people talk about death and dying and kind of preparing and they're ready to have an open conversation. And sometimes they can't do that with their family. So they do that with other people. And again, I think that that's a, a critical, you know, move to make. And so many times I see families who struggle afterwards with guilt of did they do the right thing? Should they been cremated or shouldn't they? Should we have had an open casket or a celebration of life? And, you know, having those conversations ahead of time is important to both sides because the person who is dying deserves the right to exit on their terms and it makes it much easier for a family or friends or whoever is in charge of that to make those decisions, to feel comfortable in what kind of verbiage do they want. You know, some people even write their own obituaries ahead of time, you know, in terms of who they want included in there and maybe who they don't. Um, or, you know, uh, last letters um, from the person who has passed to be read. I mean, there's there's no right or wrong these days in terms of, how to how someone passes and how we how we go about having a ceremony you know uh, all different cultures do things differently and i i know with my mom um, and my dad both we we customized theirs and we really had it be a, almost a storytelling and it was very fun and at the end of my mom's we even sang her favorite song which as she progressed and went back in the years was you are my sunshine and everybody sang and everybody walked out with a smile, not a tear in their eye, but it was really joyful. And, you know, it, we can do that. You've got permission um, to customize things and really, really do what you feel is right. And I think sometimes people don't know that that's okay to do. For our family, my grandmother, when I was maybe about three, she and I were traveling together. I was very, very close with her. And she had, um, had had rheumatic fever as a child that turned into rheumatic heart disease. And so it caused problems with her mitral valve. So many years later, um, she had a heart attack. And I remember when I would lay on her chest, I could hear that tick, 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 because she'd had um, open heart surgery and, and had that valve replaced. And so from that time on, she had a letter that she wrote and she would, and it had all of the wishes that she had included in that letter, what she would want done um, should she pass away. And every year she would go, maybe she'd go a year or two and she would re-sign um, that letter. And so when she did pass away, um, it was very comforting for the family that we knew in her service that we had done everything that she would have wanted. Um, she didn't want a, uh, an open casket and all of that. She wanted a celebration of her life and that's what we did. And so we had some folks who came to the, the service who you know, were, were used to a certain traditional type of, of service. And um, so when they expressed their feelings about how things had, had been set up, we were able to, to pull in and, and derive comfort from the fact that we had done things just as she would have wanted them to, to be done. There's a really great um, resource that's called The Five Wishes. 
and it is a, um, a, a document that people can use to um, to document what they want as far as their end of life um, care and and what their wishes would be and it's 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 a very popular document because it's a very useful document so I think that that if you're if you don't write a letter um, you may consider doing something like the the five wishes program so that you at least have that opportunity to express what your preferences are and I think sometimes there's a stigma because it does seem a little bit morbid to talk about end of life, but we really do need to have that opportunity to document those things So, because it does bring comfort to your family when you go or when um, it'll bring you comfort as a caregiver knowing that what you did was right for your family and your loved one. I so agree with that. And I, you know, for me, I love now where they have the PowerPoints looping with all the pictures and because there's so much more to a person than what we know. And just to be able to see those connections and those smiles, I was at a, a funeral actually for one of my members of my memory cafe and um, Bernie had passed away and oh my gosh, the smiles. I mean, they were just hundreds of pictures and just the connections and all these people. And it was like, it just made my heart feel good. Or in the casket, a lot of times people will put um, things that, you know, were important to, to their loved one, you know, so in my mom, she had some Avon because she was an Avon lady for a while. And she had a Dr. Pepper because she always used to sing the Dr. Pepper song. And, and even the little kids, the grandkids put something in the casket that meant something to them about grandma. So it was intergenerational. And then along with the storytelling and, and uh, it was nice. I think she would have been proud. And, and that makes it, again, easier for a care partner to say, I think we got this right or, or dang close. So I, I do think those conversations are important. Now, people can get a hold um, of you at your website which is www.caregiversupportservices.org. That's caregiversupportservices.org. And they can email you at egreen at caregiversupportservices.org. And you also have a Facebook page, so they can just plug in Caregiver Support Services. I can't thank you and Terrence enough for being with us today. I, I, this was just a great conversation, and I think it'll be so helpful I encourage people to sign up for those webinars. It'd be silly not to. They're free. And it sounds like they're going to be filled with great information and resources. And uh, Ebony is just a, a wonderful, wonderful resource for you. So again, thank you for all you're doing. You're making a big difference in the world. And I appreciate the work you and Terrence are doing. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey go a lot easier.